Hello, I'm Stu Rolls, and welcome to what promises to be yet another disappointing episode of the Back in the Band podcast. The show where we remember a simpler time in our lives when music and being in a band back in our youth meant that you could actually dream of one day living the life of a rock and roll star. In this episode, we'll be talking about amps blowing up, dressing like Boy Scouts, and vomiting on stage. Before we get into it though, let me introduce you to today's co-host. A man who listens of episode 5 will remember as the guy who makes music to beat dogs to. It's Cartel's very own David Bentley. Dave, thanks for joining me this week. I'm glad you're back, actually, mate, believe it or not. My pleasure, my pleasure. Great to chat to you again. I wanted to ask you, actually, going into this chat, we know that Rob brought up different platforms for P2P rather than my Napster. What was your experience of sharing on Napster or WinMX? What did you do? So it was always LimeWire, I'd say, for me. That was where everything was coming from. But just trying to think of those times, I remembered something called BearShare that at first in my head... I thought that couldn't fucking be real. But then I looked it up and it 100% was. Yeah, it doesn't sound it at all. I feel like it was a real anxious time of trying to rapidly download as much as you could from whatever would work before you got caught. Whether that be caught by your parents doing it or caught by the police because everyone thinks they're going to go to fucking jail for getting the latest Radiohead B-side or some shit like that. I was freaking about that at some point as well. So I was like, okay, so what I'll do is I'll download it. But as soon as I've downloaded it, I'll move it into like this music folder that's completely disconnected to oh, yeah. the folder that was sharing on that. So it's just because, you know, you thought that the five songs that you downloaded would get you in some serious trouble, you know? Exactly. Everything on an external hard drive as if that was the answer to something. I first came to Napster and then I think went into Winamex. I think I yeah, dabbled in the, the LimeWire thing was definitely around uni, wasn't it? LimeWire was yeah, around there. definitely. There was something at uni, I can't remember what the platform was, but that everybody had set up on the network kind of internally, like the intranet. I remember in the first week just ripping so many songs, so many albums, just off anybody that was in halls. I can't remember what that system was. It might have just been on the server. Rings a bell, but I also remember, because you were on the same network, right? So if you had iTunes open, I think you could see other people's libraries. So you weren't downloading, but you were streaming. You could listen to everybody's. Exactly, that was amazing as well. And I always remember... The messaging feature was such a key thing as well on Winamax. Like the amount of people that I know that ended up meeting people or or making friends on these platforms because it's like, oh, I downloaded this off you. Can you recommend other stuff and just end up being like MSN pals? Really? I don't think I ever used Winamax. MSN pals is possibly the most depressing (laughs) phrase anybody's ever used. Yeah, that's all I've got left now, actually, living remotely. We mostly chat Uh, MSN. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) So... Let's get on with it, shall we? So in a world where we no longer accidentally download Katie Price's sex tape on Napster, when actually searching for the music video for Blind by Corn, let's get going. Today's guest is Rob Graham. I first met Rob at Huddersfield Uni back in 2005. Both he, Dave and I wasted three years of our lives on the very same pop music production course. Most importantly, though, and he probably won't remember this himself, I do remember him buying us both a Chinese takeaway one day at his place in the second year of uni. It was probably really shit, but I really appreciated it at the time. So I'm hoping to pay him back today in the form of some solid laughs and nostalgia. During those uni days, Rob was a guitarist and singer in a pop punk rock band called Blacktop, which was actually pretty decent and way too decent for this podcast, if we're honest. But we want to get under the hood and find out the real juicy gossip that he hid from us at the time. 
those embarrassing, silly and downright ridiculous stories he would never have shared with us. But now we're ready for the truth. So, Rob, thanks for joining us, mate. Thank you for having me, Stu. I don't remember buying you a Chinese takeaway at all. I'm quite um, jealous of this situation. I definitely don't remember any <laughs> Chinese takeaways. So I don't know why. It was so random. I just remember it. You were like, oh, what are you doing? Do you want to come? I'll buy a Chinese. I was like, all right. It was like a Tuesday. I don't, I don't remember why. <laughs> anyway, so first question to get us in the mood, mate. What was your favourite music channel back in the days when music channels weren't shit? MTV2. Without question. So... My family, we never had Scuzz or whatever the other ones yeah. were. What were the other ones? Kerrang! Later on, no, we had the free ones. So MTV2, when MTV would play music videos rather than yep. shit reality TV, MTV2 was the one that played the alternative stuff. I remember being absolutely hooked on that channel, just sitting there, getting home from school and sticking it on and getting shit from my mum every single day for sitting down and doing nothing constructive whatsoever. <laughs> Too right. And that obviously into bands, I'm sure. But was that, when did you start getting into to bands? I think my first band was when I was 13 years old, which I've surprised myself with because in my mind I was about 16. Fortunately, no photos exist of that period in my life. What were you calling that band, Rob? What were they? What was the name? Our bands was called Without Grandma. <laughs> Absolutely top draw, that is. <laughs> um, yeah, kind of reliving those moments, I think um, I should trademark the name Without Grandma. What was so special about that band was that we only played Weezer covers. <laughs> that is special. We played two gigs, one of them like a rock gig. Every year they'd just put a gig on in the main hall at the school. Our school was called Woodland, so what makes it so great is that they called it Woodland Stock. Obviously. <laughs> Perfect. Yes, we played at Woodland Stock, and then that one doesn't really stick in the memory, to be honest, but the one afterwards does, because we played at a wine bar, and it was notorious for being the only place in Derby that would serve alcohol to underage kids. Now, having done the maths and figuring out that I was 13, 14 years old, that is absolutely abhorrent to be selling <laughs> alcohol to 14-year-old kids, isn't it? But I'm sure they absolutely loved us playing Say It Ain't So. Yeah, I'm so. sure they're just like, well, what's the band called without Grandma? Yeah, they've got to be old enough. Grandma's gone, 18 years old at least. Let's get the hooch on. Oh, the irony is, Dave, I think certainly for me personally, I was definitely with Grandma at that point, so... <laughs> Cheap jokes when you're in your 30s, man, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously that was without grandma and that's the peak. So it went downhill from there with Blacktop then, is that right? Pretty much, yeah. Those paths crossed. Blacktop were initially the Blacktop variety. Oh, I forgot that. I didn't know that at all. I've got to say, the Blacktop variety to me suggests, yes, you might be a band, but you're also possibly going to do a few skits throughout the evening, which <laughs> I'd have been well up for that. Do you have no shame, Dave? No shame whatsoever. <laughs> no shame. Honestly. So the Blacktop variety existed as Harry, Joe and Smith as a three-piece. And I was best mates with Harry, who was the front man. I think I said to him, your band isn't any good. Let me join and I've got a better drummer than the drummer you have. So Smith was forced into playing keyboards 
under duress without actually being a keyboard player at the time? I reckon across the UK and the US, so many young men were being forced into playing keyboards that didn't want to at that point. Like absolutely everywhere, <laughs> to the mid-noughties, keyboard players that did not have any rightful place in bands were rife. <laughs> <laughs> Go on then, tell us, it's from there then, you obviously told them they were shit, so why do you let you in? Yeah, by virtue of being Harry's best mate. Yep. I think I got my first guitar when I was 11 or 12 and my older brother had got into punk music and then Enema of the State was released and my history was laid out in front of me. So I think grade five in keyboard and piano. So I had all the clout at that point when I joined Blacktop. So I was able to give critical Funny though, isn't it? Like, I do remember that. Whoever was in the band that had a bit of education or a qualification, so to speak, it was like, yo, yeah, I know because I've done grade five, mate. Not just that though, but always they were the one that could play the piano, but they were refusing to do so and someone else was having to do it. Oh, what, <laughs> what kind of arsehole is that? The one who, who learned at a very early age that it's cooler to play guitar than play keyboards. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I'm going to let you have that. Do you think, Rob, Normally asked a bit later, but we're here. Do you think that yeah. being in a band, do you think that helped your social status? Most definitely. Leaving sixth form, they did one of those grotesque leavers books where they put everyone's photo in. I'll try and dig it out the attic for you because it is gold. And it is from the same era as the photographs I sent you earlier. Is that the one where it looks like the Wurzels, but arranged like Queen? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I I saw it and I thought immediately, you see there's like those 90s yearbook AI stuff that's going on, those apps, you just upload a photo <laughs> and they create them. That's what that looks like. It's exactly what that looks like. So that was a, a photo shoot done by Joe, our bass player's dad. Of course who it was. Who was doing like a <laughs> photography course at college. Oh, it's, I, always, it's always someone's parents. With that photo, I found it quite refreshing that you weren't in some kind of rundown urban area or just like... <laughs> by the side of a lake or just any of those other places that all of our band photos were taken for no reason at all. There are plenty of those photo shoots knocking about. It was one of the things that Blacktop always kind of wanted to do, not be part of that really cool scene. At the same time as I've looked through those photos of like, slip-on checkered vans, girls' jeans, and a youth small T-shirt, even though I'm a large. <laughs> it is utterly, utterly disgusting. Whoever let us dress like that and think it looked cool. <laughs> Tell us about rehearsals with Blacktop. How did that go from when you first started? What sort of places were you rehearsing in? We first practised in Drummer Dave's parents' house in his bedroom. He had the smallest room in the house, Dave, bless him, had the box room, which had his drum kit and a PA system in there. Um, so we would fit five people into this tiny box room. We had to have the windows closed because it would make too much noise. And we were allowed to practice there for a number of years. It has absolutely permanently ruined my hearing for life. <laughs> but it is also where some absolute bangers were written. So <laughs> I'm quite happy with the trade-off. So good, though. It's always where the drum kit is, pretty much. It's yeah. Like, well, where's the drummer? Wherever they are, get it there, and that's it, and everyone else has to deal yeah, with it. Yeah, drummers are awkward like that. They <laughs> have to control everything. So <laughs> you mentioned 
Without a grandma, you were doing Weezer. You mentioned Blink-182, Enema of the State. What other bands were you trying to be when you started Blacktop, would you say? What was the biggest influence on you at that point? Oh, God, it almost pains me to say it. But listening back to it now, it's even more apparent than it was at the time. Sorry for being so verbose. I really, really have to explain here before I give you the answer. (laughs) My Chemical Romance is easily the biggest influence. 100%. Yeah. Easily the biggest. I don't know. I mean, like, I'm not someone who really listened to My Chemical Romance that much, but I could identify that. But I feel like you did it, like, definitely in your own way too, though. I've got to say, listening to that EP... Firstly, it really took me back to uni, but it reminded me that, not to be too serious for a second, but like, (laughs) I remember thinking like, fuck me, this guy actually is in a band. Like this is, he's in an actual band, which was pretty impressive and exciting at the time, just because like, we were all doing bits and stuff and everybody had a bit of a band going on, but it felt like you were actually doing it and you guys sounded great and, yeah, it was it was nice. It, it made a bit of a difference, I think, that it made you feel a little bit more like, oh, yeah, we could get in a van and go and do this too. It was good. Gosh, I wish I knew what it was doing for my social status at the time, Dave. <laughs> you never said that to me, did you? <laughs> you guys were signed, right? It was Small yeah. Town Records, was it? Correct. Yeah, we were signed to Small Town Records. Tell us about that. I don't think I ever asked you, like, how did that happen? Was that like, I think this is it, guys. We've just had an email. It wouldn't be an email. Just had an SMS message. (laughs) We're going to get signed. This is it. We're going to be famous. We were really good mates with a a band called Three Stories High, who were a pop-punk band from just down the road. They were a lot more established, and we just asked, can we come on tour with you? We don't want paying. So we funded that first tour ourselves, drove round in Dave's dad's Vauxhall estate, and the last gig was at the Snooty Fox in Wakefield. If you Google the Snooty Fox in Wakefield, it still holds a really special place in my heart. Because Pete, who ran Small Town Records at the time, was at that show. He was looking for a band who did that crossover singy, shouty thing that was really cool in the noughties. Mm. Um, Can't ever imagine that we were the best band he'd seen. I think we were just the first one and he went, you know what, yeah, I'll, I'll sign these lot then. And from there we recorded, I think, two EPs with him that he released and then we'd had enough and gave up because we realised we'd just be working on the tills at Tesco for the rest of our lives if we uh, <laughs> pursued this any further. But was there a moment when that was going through that stage? Was it like, yeah, this is it, or did it not really live up to that expectation when it was happening? Really hard to remember. What kind of sticks in the memory more is that the moment that happened, I think the lot of us just immediately thought we were rock stars and started behaving like rock stars. Yeah. So... Suddenly the drink went up a level. Suddenly we were like really, really into smoking weed loads. I dread to think how much of that was just because we thought it was cool. I was going to say it's not, it wasn't a high point in my life, but it absolutely was. I was living the dream. No fear of death whatsoever. <laughs> just absolute 100% rock and roll. So give us some low points in Blacktop across the years. In no specific order. We all know that the lowest point anyone can reach in their musical career is stopping a song midway through because somebody's fucked up. 
And that's happened to us on more than one occasion. There's one that sticks in my mind where we played the most incredible lineup ever. We went on after a beatboxer who was absolutely amazing, some like all day festival in Exeter. We had to do well after that. And halfway through the first song, Harry's like sticking his hands in the air, making everybody stop. And he's got his nose ring oh, stuck God. in the gauze of his SM58. Oh my uh, God. <laughs> <laughs> no way of getting it out. And you can picture how undignified an experience that must have been for him. Shit. But for the entire band, just kind of stopping as three lads are trying to help him get this mic gauze oh from God, man. his nose ring, like, unhooked from his mic gauze. I've got to say, I think the irony of that as well, if there was anybody I think would get close enough to have that happen, it'd be a beatboxer, surely. He's probably not stupid enough to have tried to look cool and have his nose pierced, though, was he? But you got him unhooked, right? We got him unhooked and we carried on, but none of the rest of it lives in the memory at all at this point. Just... The, the guy before absolutely killing it and me thinking yeah. we're utter toast here. Another low point. I don't know if this ever happened to either of you. When booking these shows and there's a huge long list of bands at a small venue and you think there's going to be loads of people there, like everyone's going to bring their mates, it's going to be class. It was a basement show somewhere in deepest, darkest Buxton. And we ended up being last of a bill of about 45,000 bands that day um, <laughs> who were all sharing a drum kit, a bass amp, guitar amps, and the PA system. So we were there, ended up being the headliner to this act, and we went on at 1 a.m. Nobody could be bothered anymore. The equipment and the PA system had been getting hammered all day by these fucking... Bands. So when we played, the bass amp blows up. Um, the promoter after the show locks us in the basement with his fucking hard boy security guard saying we've caused thousands of pounds worth of damage. That was a pretty low point. So how'd you get out of that? Yeah, how'd you get out? I imagine it was Harry because he was always the level-headed one in the band. He had a look behind the bass amp and saw that actually it was just the speaker cable that had blown up. Terrifying, man. Jesus. <laughs> I wonder how many times they tried that. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, he's probably gone on to lead a life of fraud, hasn't he? Nice probably. Uh, promoters, I'm... I always like. There are a lot of dodgy promoters out there putting on young bands, or they used to be. No idea anymore, but... Rob, what would you say your best gig was or favourite gig? I've got one of the low points, if you don't mind me telling you oh, first. Oh, yeah, bring on the low points. <laughs> at least two categorically low points and others that are borderline <laughs> low points. But there was an infamous venue in High Wycombe that had a strip club upstairs. It sounds like I got away easy hearing Fez talk about going upstairs and getting a laptop and having about 14p in his pocket. <laughs> <laughs> The promoter gave us about 15 pizzas between however many bands he was putting on, and I was absolutely starving and had gone to town on these pizzas and just was sick everywhere mid-song. Did you vomit on stage as you go off from and came back? I vomited mid-song on stage. <laughs> like, yeah, that, that's a particular low point for me. 
The the other low point, having thrown it out to the band that I have been specifically asked to say, was when we toured Europe with a metal bands from Germany. The first date was in Amsterdam, so you can picture what we were like. We'd stocked up for the entire tour, and we saw what looked like border control in front of us. And threw a good hundred and fifty euros worth of weed out the window, wow. only to see that it was a, a set of traffic lights. <laughs> <laughs> I still have nightmares about that, you know. <laughs> yeah, categorical low point, man. I think maybe you were a little bit paranoid after your time in Amsterdam. Is there any chance that was the case? Spoken like a true Jeremy Kyle fan, honestly, Dave. <laughs> Don't believe the hype. So, go on then. That's that's quite a lot of lows. I definitely want to know about this recording. I know you look back on it and you're not sure about it, but I, as a fan of Aconite Thrill and Mighty Atom production, tell me about that. Tell us about the recording that EP. I reckon that recording, so we were there for five days, and I reckon that recording cost no more than three grand tops at the time. That was an insane amount of money for us to have had to raise. Yeah. Now, we were very fortunate to be in missions where I was a sandwich artist at university. Oh, sandwich yeah. artist. Yeah, I mean, like, that's <laughs> Thank you very right much. There, actually, yeah. isn't it? We don't, we don't need to hear any more. <laughs> Pete, at sandwich artist at Subway. You both reacted like you don't remember that. I didn't quite... until, until you just said it, but I do remember it now. I remember you sorting us out, mate. We were fortunate enough to to have enough capital to do it, but we did not have any money for accommodation. Mm. So what we decided to do was pretend to be scouts, camp for the week on a scout campsite, because the fees were insanely low. It was something like a fiver a night per scout troop, and Smith kitted us out with scout gear, like woggles and woggles. shit and the neckerchief thing. And, not, I think that's and, the second time the word woggle has come really? up in, this pod, in these podcasts. <laughs> and so what, what did you learn how to do an assortment of knots or how to start a fire? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, my job was to stay deadly quiet in the back of the van and not make a scene. We camped for the week in Swansea as wannabe scouts. By night two, they took pity on us. So there was like this indoor bit. So naturally, we abused that by smoking indoors, leaving loads of shit everywhere, and generally just being awful, awful people. Going into that studio there, man, did you do a load of pre-pro, I think? Do you, you were doing a load of click track practice and stuff going in, or were you just like, oh shit, this is a whole new world, we've got to be pro here? Our drummer and bass player certainly did lots of click track practice. Mm. I remember that distinctly and being really impressed with them because in terms of general intellect, those two definitely sat at the bottom <laughs> of the team. Oh, the last Boy Scouts. Bless them. So yeah, there, there was quite a lot of click track practice from the rhythm section going into it. I didn't give a shit because I thought I was cool and could kind of carry on whatever. Upon arrival, I don't think in a recording setting I've ever felt as intimidated as I was at first because you're like shit there's some serious bands that have recorded here Hondo McLean Aconite Thrill Funeral for a Friend yeah. at the top of that list yeah it was incredibly intimidating at first but within about half an hour kind of settled into it listening back to that EP earlier on there's so much raw energy in there it's really great like kind of power of it I think did you feel that at the time 
we were just out for having as much fun as we possibly can. There are certain bits that I listen to and think we would be cancelled now. I was really hoping to have been able to share with you a photo of me holding up a sign that says, do you know what we do to girls like you? I remember that photo, yeah. But at the same time, I'm quite grateful that it doesn't exist because, you know, you look at it with your 2023 head on and think that is absolutely abhorrent. Yes, objectively, it is utterly uh, and abysmally misogynistic, but really, we were making reference to one girl who was trying to break the band up by getting with individual members and then turn them against each wow. other. Sounded good, though, man. Like, I really, really enjoyed it. Like, like Dave said, it was really... I was really envious of that intro you always did. I thought that was a quality set opener as well. What I like about that as well is that, yeah, it's brilliant, but it is so off the time, isn't it? It takes you immediately back to that moment in time, which I like. It was the Enter Shikari influence, wasn't it? Yeah. They were yep. just kind of coming Definitely. about then, I suppose, weren't they? Or just coming around into the mainstream around then. Everyone wanted a piece of the electronics. The music video shared, how did you come about making that video? One of our mates at church was a dab hand at videography, etc. For some reason, she was talking to shoot as a music video for free. It was done January in a local park near us, and it was the coldest experience of my entire life. I'm pretty sure if you look closely, you can see our noses <laughs> yeah. running at certain points. And it didn't look like optimal weather conditions at all, no. Again, it's not a very rock and roll story, to be honest. So in order to shoot the music video, you need a track to be playing to. That track needed to be loud enough for the drummer to hear it over the sound of his own drums. Everything else you can get away with, but him drumming, he had to be able to hear it. So there was a PA system pointed at him, which was loud enough to be heard at three miles away, apparently. The police were called and they <laughs> turned up and we were that polite and lovable that they just told us to crack on. Probably because it was so cold and they took some sort of sick pleasure in watching us be that stupid that we were freezing our tits off in the neighbor trying to be cool. So before we get to our final question, Rob, is there any other stories that you think are seven listeners, when I say seven, I mean one, listeners want to hear from you and Blacktop? The only other story I can think of that... Our Bev might want to hear. It is Bev, isn't it? My mum. <laughs> Your mum, yes. You motherfucker, she... how did you remember that? <laughs> you've listened to two episodes and somehow you've got my mum's name. Brilliant. Um... <laughs> <laughs> when you said it, I was like, does he mean my mum or has he just used the word Bev? Or something? No, our Bev. Shout out to our Bev. Hey, Bev. Um, the... <laughs> The only other thing I can think of of note was I remember getting a text message one evening from Joe, our bass player. He said, Quinn Allman from The Used has got our CD. They'd played at Rock City in Nottingham that night. And do you remember that period where people would throw their CDs on the stage? And we yeah. thought nothing of it. We got an email from Quinn Allman from The Used where he was saying, I have listened to this. This song is really strong. I'd love to have a chat with you. Maybe we could have a look at producing some stuff together. So we were all sat in Dave's bedroom round the landline telephone while Harry had a chat with Quinn Allman from The Used. And that was the moment where I was like, I am going to be a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. He basically encouraged us to re-record 
every letter which is on the EP released by Small Town and had given us a bunch of pointers around songwriting. Probably one of the highest points of my entire life was hearing him say that he wished he wrote that song. Oh, great. But as we rewrote it and then sent it to him, we heard nothing from him ever again, so we probably butchered it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you listen to a fucking word I said, lads? <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. How would you do that now? Let me, you know, let me just send you my URL to Spotify. Do you know what I mean? Like, what? <laughs> yeah, people will get loads of them every single day. Like, you know, it's not quite like somebody crowd surfing, getting to the front, throwing a CD, yeah. making eye contact with the guitarist. Like, oh shit, this is my big break. Now you've got to go on the voice uh, yeah. <laughs> and be ridiculed by the nation before you actually stand any chance of getting anywhere. I love that story. It's great, man. So looking back then, man, obviously we've taken the piss. I think there's a lot of good memories there. Do you look back on it happily? Are you glad you did it? Would you do anything differently? Gosh, this bit is going to be quite poignant and I'm ever so sorry to bring the mood down. Go on, give us some poignancy. It haunts me to this day in trying to be cool, in kind of seeing a trajectory for your band and where you want to be, I think we lost some of the fun. You look back and you go, that's why we were in a band in the first place. And we kicked Skinny Dave out because we thought we weren't tight enough with Dave in the band. I remember we had a review in Big Cheese magazine where they called us the slipknot of the post-hardcore scene. I think at one point there was about 15 <laughs> members in Blacktop, wasn't there? When we had two people doing electronics and a keys player. You were thrown up on stage as well. But no, the one that kind of gets me is, is us kicking Dave out of the band because all's well that ends well. But that's what I would do differently. Uh, and that's the advice that I would give other people. Don't do it to be cool. Don't do it to try and kind of make something like stay true to what you're wanting to do, which is have loads of fun. Now we move on to the My Napster section where we champion our guests' history of petty data theft. Rob, please tell us about your first experience with the world of online piracy. What were you lifting from LimeWire, nicking from Napster or embezzling from BearShare? Did Lars Ulrich catch you? Are you still out there listening to those stolen tracks two decades later? And if you had to pick one track that defines that period for you, what would it be? Who's listening to their MP3s from 15 years ago now <laughs> at 128 kilobit? People Nobody. respect the illegality. <laughs> A peer-to-peer -peer network that hasn't been mentioned or I haven't heard mentioned so far was SoulSeek, which was oh, by yeah. far the best music sharing peer-to-peer -peer network. The song that I picked, the one that I had instinctively chosen has already been stolen by one of your previous guests. I would have gone for No Cigar by Mill and Colin. But having given it some thought, particularly looking at how dreadful the fashion was, how tight the jeans were, how long those fringes were, I couldn't get away from choosing a band from my own record label called Penknife Love Life, which is touch me again and I will stab a screwdriver <laughs> in your face. <laughs> So why that band, I suppose, why that song? It would have been Bring Me The Horizon to demonstrate the pinnacle of what scene was at the time in terms of the fashion, in terms of the chug, 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 in terms of that kind of cringy 
hardcore metal thing, um, but it felt far too obvious. Penknife Love Life, particularly for us being in that kind of West Yorkshire music scene, they were right up there as the godfathers of scene metal, weren't they? It's just a band I will always go back to when I think of that period in our lives. Nice. Now, you downloaded that on Soulseek, or what, what would you have been listening to that at that time? Probably iTunes was around by then, right? I reckon Windows Media Player iTunes with them cool visuals. Yeah, mad. Another time, mate. It was great chat. Great chat as well. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, fantastic, mate. Really good to talk to you. It was lovely to see you both again. Thank you for having me. Hey there, rockers. This is James Hetfield from Metallica, and you've been tuning in to the Back in the Band podcast. Thanks for riding the lightning with us. Remember, this isn't a one-way conversation. Connect with us on Instagram. You can find us at Back in the Band Pod. Got something to say? Tweet us at Back in the Band. And of course, make sure to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss the riff. Until next time, keep rocking, stay tuned, and stay metal. Metal.